Um, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you very much for welcoming me to uh, the Society. I, I, I can say I'm surprised, firstly, that you uh, let a Royal Marine in, in through the door. Uh, uh, and secondly, that there are still um, some serving officers uh, in uh, the room. Uh, firstly, because they've listened to me banging on uh, on an almost daily basis for the last year I've been in post. Uh, and secondly, and uh, names have been taken, um, that they got away from work early enough uh, to come here and talk. Um, Stephen, again, slightly uh, stole my thunder, because I have to confess that as a Royal Marine, um, uh, I wasn't as well acquainted with Sir Sidney uh, Cam as uh, perhaps uh, I uh, should have been. So I did do um, a little bit of research. And, and, and as Stephen says, uh, you know, an incredible man uh, delivering hugely pivotal results uh, over a really tumultuous uh, period. Uh, and the fact that he was able to contribute to the design of, of that aircraft and then contribute to the design of a future aircraft, which is about as, as far removed as a system as that, uh, and yet play a, a, such a pivotal role in both, is clearly a measure of the man who uh, has given his name to this uh, lecture. And there's a huge parallel, I think, in what I hope... Uh, uh, the point I, I, I make is that we are about uh, to enter. Indeed, we're in the foothills of um, a, a tumultuous uh, era, and uh, it is those who are able to uh, innovate, to uh, embrace uh, change, uh, to recognise uh, opportunities, to, to judge uh, risks uh, effectively uh, in that period... Uh, that will uh, that will prevail, and there isn't a rule book. You know, we're in we're in new territory in technological terms and cultural terms. Uh, there isn't something a doctrinal handbook that one can refer to. It's about dealing and responding uh, to what you see. That's what he did, and I think that is what we uh, need to do. Um, I'm actually. Uh, that's a slightly misleading title, um, or it's, it's, it's very accurate if you widen the definition of multi-domain to its, to its further aspects. What I'm, I think I'm going to be talking about are what are the challenges facing uh, today's militaries, uh, militaries in order to retain the comparative uh, advantage that allows them uh, to uh, succeed uh, on the battlefield and beyond, and embracing multi-domain warfare as part of that is is going to be key to it. I'm not really, and I, I, I'm I, I, I'm I'm going to sense the disappointment in the room. I'm not really going to talk about air power uh, particularly or aircraft uh, uh, particularly. I'm just so you don't think that I'm being biased, I'm not going to talk about ships either or tanks. Uh, I'm going to talk about uh, the symbiotic uh, effect of, of leveraging all our capabilities. And take it from me, uh, I am a, a huge advocate, uh, uh, often uh, a first-hand recipient of the benefits of, 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 of air power. But... Instead, I want to make the point that the most successful militaries are those that are balanced in capability terms and comfortably embedded in both alliances and with their own societies. And where I may surprise you is that I'm going to focus on that last bit, perhaps a little bit more uh, than a, uh, a compatriot of mine uh, five, ten years ago uh, might have done. 
Um, it would be wrong not to just have a quick uh, uh, two minutes on um, the issue of the moment, that of the uh, terrorist attacks uh, in both uh, Manchester uh, and London, which uh, I can confirm uh, from the inside has been uh, dealt with superbly by um, both the security service uh, and the police. And you will have noticed uh, perhaps more prominent uh, military contribution uh, than we have been used to seeing, particularly after the uh, Manchester bombing when we deployed uh, troops uh, on uh, the streets. To be clear, and I hope you picked this up in the press, that was essentially about backfilling in order to generate armed police so that they could um, conduct the investigation that the police and the security services uh, deemed worthwhile. It was not about a sort of a, a need to impose additional levels of security or seeking to militarise the streets of whatever city uh, they were on. It was about backfilling in order to generate uh, police capacity. Uh, and it was a successful operation. It was the first time that something that we planned for a while uh, uh, was run out. It worked very well. It worked in a very quick and agile and effective way. Uh, that was important uh, because the, that agility and our abil uh, an ability to respond meant that politicians and senior policemen were much happier to see it turned off when the need no longer uh, uh, existed. Had we been sort of cumbersome and a little bit slow, they may have been a little bit more reticent of turning the tap off. So that agility was really important in, 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 uh, in delivering. We didn't uh, deploy that uh, in uh, the response to the London attack because the nature of the attack was different and the nature of the police investigation was different and the requirement for armed uh, police on the streets uh, was different. But we stand ready uh, to be in support of the uh, police should, uh, and let's uh, hope it doesn't, uh, another uh, incident uh, come our way. There are a number of implications for this for the military. I think um, the idea that, um, uh, that the military are uh, not a factor uh, domestically uh, is one that has already been scotched. I don't think it is just about party, uh, this particular uh, Conservative Party. I think that's uh, here to stay. Uh, and some of the sort of uh, ghosts of Peterloo and other parts of our, our deep history, I think, have been um, thrown away. And now there is an acceptance that the military has a role to play on, on the streets of the UK. I also think there's an acceptance that uh, whilst that may be needed, that's not necessarily a good thing. And uh, we should avoid and minimise that uh, if we can. Uh, we uh, directly support uh, the police uh, and the security forces. We've got multiple hundreds working with them uh, on every day, both in the overt, the analysis, and the covert side uh, of uh, life. And, of course, we've got the, the multiple thousands um, uh, involved in Optempera, which is the backfill mission that I um, have described. So it's a much more prominent part of defence planning uh, than, than it has ever been. It's principally um, army, uh, but uh, the uh, Air Force and the RAF Regiment play a very prominent part in, in the areas where uh, they are uh, based, and it is truly a joint operation. The other implication, which I think is, 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 is uh, really important and starts to get after uh, the title is that this idea that one can distinguish or differentiate between uh, the domestic space 
and one's actions uh, overseas, I think, has gone. In today's information age where uh, one can instantly access uh, what uh, your uh, military are doing overseas, we have to recognise that there is a, a linkage between the two. And in the immediate aftermath of the Manchester uh, attack, where you picked up from the press that there was a Libyan connection, again, lots of questions uh, of us as to uh, what we could do um, to secure, to determine, to uh, bring confidence to the Libyan end of the, of the market. Um, we need to recognise that how we act, how we behave, uh, how we conduct ourselves uh, in uh, foreign fields, and here um, precision uh, bombing from the air is a really important uh, component of this, plays directly back into um, the potential radicalisation uh, agenda back home and therefore uh, operating with the utmost propriety uh, and ensuring that and messaging that that is the case so that what we're doing is better understood is a really key part of it. So um, I, I, I wanted to start by giving you an update on where we are, given the, um, the, the, the proximity of the incidents, but I don't think actually it's entirely uh, irrelevant to the uh, issues that um, I am about to talk on. Um, I suppose it would be wrong not to start with a very quick synopsis of why the world is a more dangerous and complex place. Um, it, it is, I would argue, a more dangerous place than it has been for some time because of two divergent um, uh, threat axes. The first is the uh, instability um, that is created by the religious differences uh, the uh, uh, international disputes, the inequality, the climate change uh, generated instability that exists at reach, which has delivered um, for us um, a heady cocktail of uh, terrorism, uh, organized crime, uh, migration, uh, and any number of other uh, sources of instability that bridge from uh, where they originate to uh, often um, back uh, to their home. And those are not, as they once uh, were in the good old days of Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, relatively self-contained uh, uh, with a relatively uh, compliant, uh, a geographically compliant uh, adversary that you could draw a boundary around uh, and call it a joint operating area and conduct your business within it. They are profoundly trans-regional uh, as uh, issues. They are profoundly uh, interlinked as issues. Just go to um, uh, northwest Syria at the moment and you'll find uh, refugees, uh, people smuggling, organized crime, terrorism, uh, insurgency, international power, politics uh, playing out, all within a sort of 10-kilometer-by-10-kilometer square um, uh, to the northwest of, um, of Aleppo. Uh, that is a really difficult uh, mix, and as I say, it is, it is all utterly uh, interlinked. And it is not particularly or necessarily uh, a military lead to deal with it. All those things have different leads, and we need to understand our place uh, in relation to uh, diplomatic leads 
uh, law enforcement leads, uh, humanitarian leads, different forms of coalitions that need to be formed to deal with different uh, sorts of challenges. It's a very, very complex uh, mix. But, it's a, but it's, a, it's a threat level which is relatively low. It's um, a threat that we can uh, overmatch. But it's very divergent to the second threat axis, uh, which is that of a growing uh, peer, near-peer uh, competitor uh, and the, uh, the increased prominence of, of state-based challenges uh, to the rule-based uh, international uh, structure. Uh, we can name the names, uh, Russia, uh, um, Iran, uh, China, uh, North Korea. They're not all the same. Their motivations are not all the same, but they share the quality of uh, being uh, or seeing themselves as disadvantaged as a result of the decades of what they consider to be US-imposed status quo, and they feel that the moment is now to push back, uh, to extend and to uh, pursue uh, the, the goals, the goals that they feel in different ways uh, have been uh, withdrawn from them as a result of that status quo. That makes for quite a, 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 a difficult mix, and I'll come on to some of the challenges that are upon us as a result of dealing with, um, with uh, both of them. Uh, in addition... Um, you'll see I'm hopeless, by the way, at reading scripts. I've never done it. Um, but because I was told to uh, deliver a script, this is a script. And, of course, what I'm now doing is now finding my place as I ramble. So this is not going to be a well-delivered lecture, okay? So not only am I not going to talk about aircraft, I'm not going to deliver this well. I just, so as I don't disappoint at the end. Um, <laughs> I really did mean that. Um, I, I, I think that the, uh, when, when we examine that uh, divergent threat axis, we need to recognise that in terms of the existential threat, the severity of that threat sits very, very squarely in the state-based threat. What I do not want to do is to overplay the likelihood or the imminence of it, but in terms of the severity and the impact of us getting that wrong, that uh, has to be where we as defence must focus. Of course, we must continue to contribute to um, tackling those challenges born of instability uh, and inequality often directly so by confronting them in the way that our Royal Air Force are doing on a daily basis uh, over the skies of uh, Iraq uh, and Syria. But I think it's incumbent upon us as a department and as a military to be the conscience of our ability to defend and deter against those types of threats without overplaying them, without being accused of uh, doing so in order to... Um, uh, scaremonger uh, and make our case. And as I go, uh, as I go into sort of national security councils and, uh, and various meetings across the road, the talk is very much of the terrorist threat. The talk is very much of the, um, uh, the instability that is created by the, the phenomena that I have, uh, have described. And understandably so, because the political instinct is, is to uh, respond to the more uh, immediate 
but we do, I think, um, have that responsibility to, uh, as, as a department to, um, uh, to at least act as a conscience. Which is why I believe that we need to be serious about returning to the principal uh, function uh, of an armed force, which is to deter. Uh, and if there is a theme uh, um, in the next however many minutes, um, then it will be about how we reconfigure uh, culturally, uh, organisationally, cap- from a capability, from a societal perspective of how we uh, deter Before I do that, let's just highlight a couple of other um, contextual dynamics. Um, These uh, serve uh, to show that um, the world we live in is not only more dangerous, uh, it is also uh, more complex. Um, I have a script here, but I will paraphrase it. The first is the rise of the uh, information age and our uh, ability to uh, respond uh, to it. You have, I'm sure, have been to countless lectures that expound uh, how this makes things different. Uh, And I hope uh, that it has landed uh, that uh, simply the uh, processing ability of computers and the fact that by 2045... Uh, there will be 20,000 times more digital information available than today, that we're getting close to computers that can operate like a human brain, that if we do make the breakthrough into quantum uh, computing, then the human brain is left uh, left well behind. Uh, And this has a profound uh, implication now uh, on how we uh, conduct uh, operations. It connects new audiences to conflicts, And this tightly binds strategy to tactics and demands that for military action to be effective, it must be conducted within the context of a cohesive and focused strategy as well as a strong supporting narrative. Uh, A great example of this is our recent deployment of a battle group to Estonia as part of the Enhanced Forward Presence. Uh, We, um, as military people, focused very much on the mechanics of getting that force Uh, to Estonia. We focused on the training program to ensure that uh, we were maximising interoperability uh, opportunities and the like whilst there. Uh, The reality is that the the, the key part of that deployment was an information campaign. It was about reassuring uh, the Baltic nations and it was about deterring uh, Russia from any sort of mischief, and I'm not talking, we weren't ever thinking of tanks rolling over uh, borders, deterring them from mischief in some of the Russian communities uh, in the Baltic uh, states. So our success criteria is not however many people properly fed operating as effectively as they, as they can, it's how we are doing in the information narrative, which is a contest uh, and go to Estonia and read the papers and look at the social media and, and, and go to Lithuania and realise what the Russians are trying to do to stir up mischief of the German deployment there and you will realise that this is a contest uh, that we are in and it is an information contest. So the degree uh, to which uh, NATO 
um, is ready and able to match them is something that is very front and centre in our in our mind at the moment. We think that nationally we have the coherence to do it, but of course this is very much a NATO operation, and as much as possible we want NATO to take the lead uh, on that. The second complicating piece, and again, uh, I doubt anyone in this room will be a stranger to it, is the pace of technological change uh, and its impact on the evolving nature of warfare and therefore of uh, deterrence. And how we adapt to those uh, emerging technologies will define our comparative advantage. And being able to do so more effectively and more quickly than uh, one's potential adversaries uh, will be a huge uh, uh, advantage, edge, uh, and will play a massive role in deterrence. You know the sorts of capabilities I'm talking about. Cyber, satellite and other safe space capabilities, novel weapons, artificial intelligence, biomaterial sciences uh, and automated systems. We have to keep abreast of those. We have to uh, invest uh, in those. We have to choose our moment and leap at the moment where those technologies rightly make the leap from research and development into capability. We need to choose our partners very carefully in developing those, uh, those uh, capabilities because we don't want them uh, widely uh, held by others. And we need to consider uh, the doctrine for their use. We need to think through how those technologies uh, will play out in deterrence. Because without a rule book, there's no point in having a capability in the first place. And when you get into, you know, we've got doctrines for armoured warfare, we've got doctrines for air power, we haven't got doctrines for some of these things that are coming in. We haven't got an awareness of what the decision-making uh, associated with its employment might be. And there's, there's an area there that we need to focus on. So, modern deterrence. Um, I do want to um, spend a little uh, on uh, uh, deterrence and examine the changing nature of, of deterrence uh, in the 21st century. The principles haven't really changed. We define deterrence as a relationship in which potential aggressors know that any benefits they seek to gain by attacking us and our allies will be outweighed by the consequences. So as a concept... Its principles endure. But with the ever-changing political context and rapidly developing technologies, its practice needs to adapt and remain agile. Now, there are still only two essentially dis uh, distinct uh, deterrent strategies, the denial of benefit and the imposition of cost, by which I mean the threat of punishment. But these need to be placed in the contemporary technological, digital, and geopolitical context. And it's what we call modern deterrence. I hope it's a phrase that you get to hear more of. Uh, it was in the SDSR without being truly uh, uh, defined. Uh, we want it to be at the heart of uh, national security uh, strategy into the future. Its key components are, firstly, coherence and solidarity. Now, these have always been vital components of, of uh, deterrence, perhaps now more than ever. But in today's world of, of instant, ubiquitous information, a common approach across government and between governments is essential because inconsistencies and varying levels of commitment 
will be exploited. For the UK, the importance of NATO in our deterrence approach cannot be overstated. It may have its occasional frustrations and shortcomings, but as an organisation that can harness the collective will of now 29 nations, Montenegro um, having now uh, acceded, I hope everyone picked that up, it is unparalleled. It is unparalleled from a, uh, a blue force perspective and it's unparalleled from a red force perspective. Uh, Russia fears the collective will of NATO uh, more than it fears uh, anything else. Now, part of making sure that it is effective will be to improve NATO's ability to operate in this information space, in this uh, rapidly uh, evolving uh, uh, age. And we're pushing, the UK are pushing very strongly in Brussels with the support of a number of uh, allies uh, and member nations uh, to, to secure that change, uh, particularly in places like JFC Brunson, JFC Naples and uh, SHAPE. The second component is one of attribution. Um, because in a world of fake news and plausible uh, deniability, this starts to really matter. And our ability to recognize attack an attack uh, and identify who's behind it will be key to the timeliness and effectiveness of our response. This almost certainly will require uh, investment. Attribution is not as easy as it seems. Take the shoot down, uh, the MH17 shoot down, uh, as an example. Thirdly, our deterrent options must be multifaceted in order to deliver agility and graduated severity. No longer can we view deterrence as simply the deterrent, uh, which I think is what we were all brought up on where this was, deterrence was an all-or-nothing game. Nowadays, sub-strategic deterrent options will have huge utility in what we know to be a very ambiguous near future. Equally, we must not solely subscribe to the eye-for-an-eye school of thought when an attack or a potential attack can only be responded to in kind. Yes, of course, we could uh, deliver a cyber attack upon a nation or an organization that delivers a cyber attack on us. But there are plenty of other options available to us. And again, such a multifaceted approach as this will require doctrinal and conceptual underpinning. And our, our approaches to thresholds, our approaches to political risk appetites, uh, our uh, approach to operational risk appetites will need to be refined in the light of what I think is a very different world. Now, not all those options in, this, uh, in those multifaceted, graduated severity world uh, will be military in nature. Uh, examples would be sanctions or diplomatic expulsions or plenty of other tools that are available to a state uh, in order to uh, uh, deter but many uh, will be, and advances, advances in technology have delivered many more capabilities into our inventory, the use of which we must now think through in the context of modern deterrence. Cyber, both defensive and offensive, clearly plays a key role, and defensive cyber, of course, has a deterrent effect of its own, more of which later. 
but so does technological overmatch in all domains, on the battlefield, in space, and in the information sphere. We can no longer think of the military's contribution to deterrence as simply being a combination of CASD, yes, this big black thing um, under the uh, Atlantic, and battlefield uh, dominance. The future demands the military adopting a far more integrated, full-spectrum contribution, offering a wider scale of uh, options to our politicians, and sometimes being in the lead and sometimes being supported. So it would be wrong to simply view deterrence through the lens of military capability, but in a world where deterrence starts to become more and more important, I would argue that the prominence of the military and defence as a lever of national security is about to uh, um, uh, increase. What I want to come to now is to talk a little about um, the comparative advantage that I uh, believe is necessary in order to deliver that modern deterrence. And if we do buy the argument that deterrence is about the ability to generate uh, comparative advantage, then I think it would be wrong to leap straight into a capability versus capability debate. And what I want to do is to talk about some of the systemic qualities that I think any armed force needs if it is to retain its ability to uh, deter. I call them, and the future force concept, which is a uh, about-to-be-published uh, piece of work from DCDC, calls them uh, foundational uh, elements, and I thoroughly uh, subscribe to the profile uh, that they're getting um, from uh, within uh, the department uh, that I work in. Some are capability-orientated, some are organisational, some are internal to us as a military, some are dependent on a wider governmental approach, and some are deeply societal uh, at heart. All share the fact that they are the building blocks of what gives a military, a military, any military, a competitive edge. And they have cross-cutting relevance regardless of the domain or the service. They are foundational essentials without which our military capabilities are commensurately more hollow. And without them, uh, we can't really expect to deter very much at all. In a, in a, in a, I, I sort of wrote this uh, last week and then, then read the Future Force concept. And so what I'm saying is not a, a, a rewrite of the Future Force concept, but I can tell you that much of what I say is consistent with them. And you'll find some terminology changes. But the, this, is, this is how I saw it instinctively. And I was reassured that it sort of mapped uh, reasonably well against um, uh, the, the, the DCDC work. But I, um, I think it's possible to identify five foundational principles which, if observed, will deliver the comparative advantage that is central to modern deterrence. The first is that of our resilience, uh, by which I mean our ability to defend against threats and to uh, absorb shocks. Uh, and that is an effort that must be configured to withstand against the full array of modern threats. Now, I won't go into detail, but I'll cover some of its principal components. Uh, and I will tell you that uh, this is such a strong 
profile in main building at the moment that we have uh, corralled them uh, functionally uh, under the banner of defending defence and we are reorganising um, uh, accordingly to ensure that we're building the, um, the maximum amount of coherence uh, from our efforts. Um, as I say, this isn't a totally comprehensive list, but some of the key components are firstly our network and systems uh, resilience. Uh, we're in investing heavily in cyber defence and in the resilience of our systems. We're investing heavily in cyber vulnerability assessments and putting money behind the findings of those vulnerability assessments to uh, improve uh, our uh, security. We're getting great support from the GCHQ-led National Cyber Security Centre, which has had quite a sort of public uh, profile uh, recently, um, and it's proved to be actually a really successful and timely initiative, which government is entirely bought into and there is a defence and security uh, sector within it into which we fully plug and it's a really uh, successful and as I say quite timely because it was set up before some of these really quite substantial uh, attacks that we have faced recently. Of course protecting to a high level uh, our military networks uh, is uh, non-discretionary and we continue to scour uh, the defence hinterland, working uh, on the margins and seams to ensure that those outside organisations and entities that plug into defence are as assured and impenetrable as their equipment and capabilities they support. I think that is um, not particularly good code for defence supply chain, which we believe to be a soft uh, underbelly. As recent uh, events continue to prove, this threat picture is highly fluid and constantly advancing, making this a constant challenge. It's, it's almost the sort of new arms race in terms of cybersecurity with the ability of those who seek to either disrupt or exploit your information. Um, and it's, um, uh, it's something which we can neither be uh, complacent nor ever uh, presume total security, uh, regardless of how much energy and effort uh, that we put into it. And I would contend that that is true of, of uh, any organisation. Uh, a second component to resilience is an ability to operate, to continue to operate in a degraded environment. Now here I, I include both our day-to-day -day systems, um, the uh, computers that we turn on in the morning, uh, that if uh, subject to a, uh, a cyber attack would create uh, considerable disruption and we are starting to invest more and more on what um, uh, was, uh, I suppose, rightly called business continuity. But we are taking it seriously. We're doing um, uh, war gaming. We're actually uh, in the business of turning off parts of our network to see uh, how we can uh, cope in that. But possibly more uh, uh, profoundly important, uh, an ability to continue to operate in a degrading environment when on operations, when on the battlefield, particularly now that our key warfighting capabilities are increasingly software and system reliant. There's no point uh, us spending billions of pounds delivering cutting-edge military capability, delivering unparalleled hard power, if it can be neutralised by a 15-year-old state-sponsored hacker exploiting vulnerability in its uh, support software. Uh, and there are some horror stories uh, out there, some of which you may know. 
Now, we've moved, I think, from the unknown unknown space into the known unknown space uh, in recent years as we understand the threats better and we're allocating the right resource to protect the things that we hold most dear. Uh, and we're also, as I said, working through our TTPs, tactics, techniques and procedures, uh, to ensure that we can get back into the fight or get back to business as soon as possible after attack and trying to remain ahead of the next one. Mass matters uh, in resilience terms. And quantity, I don't know who said this, uh, so I should have looked it up. Uh, quantity has a quality uh, of its own. Uh, and however sophisticated our technology becomes, we will never completely circumvent the inherent military value of mass. And in a world where we can afford fewer and fewer, more and more expensive platforms, I think there is a balance here uh, to which I will return. This also places a premium on our ability to reconstitute and to regenerate. Um, and again, uh, the nation that can demonstrate an effective uh, methodology in doing that uh, has a strong uh, deterrent uh, card uh, to play. And our reserves and our whole force concept is at the heart of uh, that. It's also worth, I think, um, in recognizing that we're not culturally, societally, or industrially configured uh, to deliver that reconstitution and regeneration, it is worth touching on the part played uh, by defense industry, which must continue to deliver a key role in ensuring competitive advantage for our military or there won't be a military for the defence industry to support. And I would argue that this partnership um, uh, is something which is ever more important as the threats and the severity of getting it wrong, the impact of getting it wrong, grows. Uh, that is a, re a reality that we need to face in the next 10 uh, to 15 years. And the sooner we grapple with it, uh, the better. I don't want to get into the hugely political issue of the virtues of sovereign defence industry. But in today's world, where we are increasingly dependent on contractorised support and just-in-time logistics, we have to have a serious conversation with industry about assured uh, support and lead times that will deliver the agility that the future force demands in the environment that it might be expected to fight it was relatively easy to assure for the type of expeditionary operation we've become used to. But how would we cope? How will we cope if something occurs on a much larger scale in geography, intensity, or concurrency? So that's resilience. The second defining characteristic to which defence should aspire is affordability. Uh, affordability is much more than going to your political masters and saying we need more uh, money. Affordability is a responsibility uh, upon um, a, an armed force, upon a defence community, to ensure uh, that, uh, it, uh, that the right sort of balance capability can be afforded by the nation. There are challenges. Divergent threats and rising costs of both people, kit and readiness is making defence affordability an issue of strategic importance. This is not just something that the UK is feeling. This is something that even the wealthiest nations, including the US, are struggling to cope with rising capital costs 
and the costs of maintaining readiness. Now, clearly a part of this is us driving out inefficiency in defence as much as we can. And we all know that there is still uh, inefficiency out there. There are still efficiencies that we can yet find. Uh, They're hard and they're increasingly uh, hard to get at. But without ruthless pursuit of them, uh, then frankly our our pleas for uh, more money will fall on uh, stony ground. Uh, Defence industry plays a part here too. Um, I am not an expert in this, but I do know that defence industry inflation is significantly higher than the national rate of inflation. And going back to this point of a a, a sort of existential partnership, um, I think that's something that we must tackle together. We need to get better at the avoidance of requirements creep. We need to be better at accepting off-the-shelf capability. We need to have, uh, um, be prepared to get the balance right between high-end capability and less expensive, less bespoke systems that can deliver the drumbeat of military activity around the world and contribute to our resilience at the same time. Now, there's a challenge here because divergent threats um, that I described at the very beginning demand different types of capability in their response. And what's rather annoying is that there is... Um, limited overlap between the types of capabilities that one needs for um, a peer, a, a pacing competitor, and the types of capabilities that one needs for upstream prevent. The latter requires low survivability, low lethality, m- ubiquity, presence, engagement. Uh, the other uh, provide, you know, requires highly sophisticated equipment able to operate in a hugely complex environment, high levels of survivability, high levels of lethality, and the like, which means you get ever, ever smaller. There is a question about whether that old adage of design your military for the worst case and you can deal with everything that, uh, uh, that, that um, falls below that threshold is still valid. And it may be that we're starting to get into a game where we're designing um, a military which has a high-end uh, a high-end um, uh, element to it to deal with one threat and also has, let's call it slightly flippantly, cheap mass uh, to, deal with, to, to deal with the other. The Type 26, Type 31 uh, debate starts to take you into, in, into that ground. I do wonder whether there are parallels in other, in other, in other domains. The third foundational element, which is central uh, to uh, any military that seeks competitive advantage, is, and good old Sydney got this right, uh, to enable a culture of innovation and continuous experimentation that allows us to turn ideas into actions and capabilities quicker than our potential adversary. And again, what a deterrent effect. Who would have a go at a country that demonstrably can adapt quicker than you, can get capabilities into the field quicker than you. Having an innovative, uh, ref- uh, constant refreshing culture is key to this. And it will not only be of deterrent value, but drive a healthy agility and a modern edge into our ways of work. And we're trying to make innovation a more instinctive response, and we're trying to adapt our processes and cultures accordingly. We need, as I said earlier, to transition from research and development into capability quicker than we do. And we need to be less wary of failure. I know you've heard that before. 
Uh, I have heard it before, uh, but I do think that we are, are starting, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a, a drive and a culture uh, uh, developing, and we're bringing the right people in to take that forward, where I hope you will start seeing some change. And the recently announced MOD uh, Innovation Fund with associated structures, uh, I hope that uh, the industrialists uh, in the audience uh, will uh, know what that is, attempts to get after it, and I commend it to you. And I'm not, by the way, talking about innovation in its broadest sense. It's not just about staying ahead of the technology curve. It's about modernizing our ways of working to make it more effective. And, and, and we are investing research and development in this, it's after getting after our affordability challenge. Investing to make yourself affordable. The fourth quality um, is uh, um, that of uh, the ability to attract and retain a skilled workforce. With a demographic that works against us, a national STEM skills shortage driving an ever more competitive labour market, uh, they've spelt it L-B-O-R here, by the way, just to dig at my team here, that's very American, um, and a growing requirement both in quantity and quality, this might actually just be our greatest challenge of all. And to me, as Vice Chief, uh, that's how it feels. Because unless we are able to attract uh, the widest range of people uh, from the entirety of our society, uh, rather than from our traditional recruiting pool of young white men, uh, then we will be presiding over the world's greatest military museum uh, in the 2025. Uh, it just, the, the, the sums, the recruiting, the skills just simply do not add up. And we have to take this challenge seriously. We have to recruit more women. We have to be understood by and then recruit more from our ethnic uh, minority workforce. We have to be competitive uh, in, uh, the skills, uh, in the skills market. Because if we don't, we won't be able to operate the capabilities that we're building. And we've already, there have already been examples of submarines not being able to sail because a chief petty officer um, mum died. Um, I, I won't, I'm, I'm, I'm running behind time, so I won't go over all the various parts of our people um, portfolio that gets after that. But I would say that the whole force concept um, does start to matter. And, and the fluidity of the workforce, particularly in key skill shortage areas, is something we're very keen uh, to explore. So this idea of it's not just about regulars, it's about regulars and properly incorporated motivated reserves. It's about a civil service that is excited and, and, and shaped and motivated to do its uh, job. And it's about an industrial sector that, yes, of course, um, will have a profit margin to uh, take account of, but recognises that it's in its interests in the long term to be a supportive partner in what is an overall uh, endeavour. And that's a conversation that we're having with sectors of industry, uh, particularly on this idea of flexible employment and, and, uh, and fluidity amongst the workforce. And boy, does diversity and inclusion uh, matter. Uh, and anyone who thinks otherwise uh, is in the wrong century. The last quality, um, and again, I'll be quite quick because I am uh, running behind, is um, the ability to interoperate with allies and partners. It's um, a, a, a reasonably easy-to-say uh, phrase, but it is really, really important, and we need to be configured around interoperability. That means that 
NATO operability, interoperability needs to drive the configuration of our systems. And we sometimes, in certain areas, need to be uh, a rather less national in our outlook and rather less bespoke in our outlook, particularly as the affordability challenge to the, the, that is um, upon everyone will mean that burden sharing will become more and more of a reality uh, into the future. Um, let me uh, now just talk in the last uh, uh, 10 minutes or so um, about um, the uh, capability uh, implications of what I've described. I, I'm, I'm really conscious I haven't even, talk, I haven't even said the word aircraft, and I'm, I apologise, guys. And that's all very sort of foundational. But I, you know, I do really believe that that's where, from a strategic level, we need to focus. Because with, you know, we, could, we could focus on capabilities. We could focus on Joint Force 2025 as a series of, of um, equipments that we're bringing into service and have really pretty Gantt charts. But unless we get that contextual, foundational stuff right, uh, then we're not ready for the 2020s. I, 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 I can't put that more starkly. Um, so let's just talk a little about the military capabilities and, and, and firstly recognise the fact that it has a role beyond the battlefield. Um, and here uh, we need to recognise that a good, good part of modern deterrence is about strategic deterrence. It's about holding at risk your adversity at the strategic level. And the comparative ubiquity of information brings into play this key trait, which many of you will describe as strategic compression. What I'm not talking about is the long screwdriver from Whitehall, from Brussels, or from anywhere else. That's just a reality of life. It's a, it's a more prominent reality of life, given um, access uh, to information, but it has gone on uh, in uh, some form or other for, for decades. What I'm talking about is um, the fact that the instant accessibility of information has changed the delineation that we uh, have got used to between the strategic, the operational, and the tactical. The fact that one can create an, an, an information effect in any part of the world from any part of the world means that that delineation uh, is more blurred than ever. Strategy is now increasingly sensitive to tactical actions and the opinions of local, regional, and global uh, audiences. Nations or organisations can no longer set the strategic ends and means and then simply delegate the execution. And some capabilities and effects, including many military tools, will inevitably be controlled, coordinated and delivered by the strategic level, particularly where spillage risks of delegation are seen as too great or where the impact of their use is seen as too significant. Now, an obvious uh, example is decisions surrounding the use of nuclear weapons, but I expect this bracket to increase to encompass other capabilities whose impact would be fully strategic if used. Certain offensive cyber capabilities would fall into this category. Perhaps some space-based or novel weapon systems might fall into this category. And therefore, this idea that the strategic uh, sets the, uh, the ends and the means and delegates to a forward-based commander or to a, a commander the use of all these uh, assets, uh, I don't think is, uh, is valid. And how one coordinates and coheres as effectively between the various uh, levels is a challenge which, frankly, I don't think we have yet uh, fully 
confronted. The other uh, uh, challenge is that the utility of some of these capabilities as part of the joint force in the joint battle space may well be limited, but they still require investment by defence um, as um, in order to deliver what will be a national deterrent tool in the same way, frankly, that, that nuclear is. Now, what I'm not saying is that established warfighting capabilities um, uh, will uh, uh, diminish uh, in comparison. Um, but I do believe that the modern world brings many challenges to the nature of their employment. We talked about the quantity versus uh, quality uh, uh, um, uh, balance. Uh, we talked about uh, resilience. These will matter for our capabilities on our uh, battlefields. However, equally, our increased reliance on networks and systems must not become a dependency, and uh, we have to feel comfortable operating in reversionary mode if these networks become uh, degraded. Now, Joint Force 2025 is the manifestation of our conventional warfighting capability. At the moment, it is little more than a A4 piece of paper which describes the various capabilities. What we are in the process of doing is to try and build that into a balanced, complete, systemized uh, capability which starts to focus on it as a networked force. It starts to focus it on as a resilient force. It starts to focus on it as a sustainable force. And all those things are up arrows in resource terms uh, that haven't been um, as factored into the future programme uh, as they should be because of our pursuit of um, uh, bits of metal and, and um, specific capabilities on that chart. There's a real challenge in how one develops that PowerPoint slide of capability and turns it into a joint warfighting force uh, worthy of the name. But don't underestimate, and please don't think, because I haven't focused on that part of it, that I in any way underplay the importance of the ability to do so as a deterrent capability. If you can't deliver that, then almost everything else you do in the deterrent space is for naught. We um, have long lived with um, the uh, joint environment. The joint environment has moved from a place where it was simply about uh, environments working together tactically, land, air, amphibious operations and the like, into uh, the orchestration of effect that transcends all environments. And we've, we've um, recently um, uh, set up a headquarters uh, the Standing Joint Force Headquarters, whose role it is to maintain skills in those very, very complex areas like full-spectrum uh, effects, network management, joint ISR collect, and, and many other functions that are, that are new and novel and are symptoms of the information uh, age. But we also need to uh, wake up and smell the coffee and, and, uh, and increase the number of domains from uh, those traditional ones of air, sea, and land uh, by adding... Um, cyber and space. Uh, we toyed with the notion of also including information as a domain, but recognised that information is truly ubiquitous and more of a contextual uh, reality than a domain in its own right. What we're essentially doing by expanding domains into cyber and space is recognising that, um, that, that the joint battle space has expanded beyond the physical. Perhaps we've got there a little late, um, but we are there now. These two new domains really matter. 
They matter because they're fundamental to the concept of modern deterrence, and the dominance of one or other, however elusive, could prove decisive in any future confrontation. Secondly, they're critical enablers without which the conduct of more traditional joint operations is now almost infeasible. And thirdly, they are areas of potential systemic underinvestment, which if we don't elevate their status, we risk falling behind peer competitors who are unlikely to make the same mistake. Neither the cyber nor space domain are yet particularly instinctive to the broader Kirk, and I would include myself in that uh, a year ago, and both rely on a relatively small band of enlightened uh, brothers and sisters to maintain uh, expertise and to act as a conscience within the system. But getting them right is vital, so I want to just go into them in a little bit more detail in my last, uh, in my last few minutes. Cyber is the one where we've um, developed uh, um, uh, further and uh, faster. Recent and increasingly common high-profile cyber incidents have heightened its profile, and now every public and private sector is taking its cybersecurity seriously and investing accordingly. As I've said earlier, we've been on this case for a while, but I would not want that interpreted as either complacency or undue confidence. Defence systems are an attractive target, and although we take cybersecurity seriously, we, and do all we can to prevent uh, penetration or disruption, it would be foolhardy to boast immunity. And we talked about the soft underbelly of the defence supply chain, and we're working with industry uh, hard to uh, look to uh, assess the vulnerability there um, and uh, minimise the risk. Offensive cyber is more specialised business. It's obviously an area that uh, we're working very closely with GCHQ, and it's an area where we can say less about for the obvious reasons. But we are working hard to develop offensive uh, cyber as a deterrent capability, and we're developing processes and doctrine across government for its use. It's complex, it's quite exciting, uh, and it's got profound implications for deterrence and for the conduct of military uh, operations. If we're to get it right, we're to in we must invest in the cyber workforce if we're to provide and retain the comparative advantage over those who seek us harm or to exploit our secrets. This is another area of intense competition with the private sector. Cyber specialists are sought-after people, and we're unable to compete on pay, and therefore our USP has to be about the virtues of duty, dare I say it, patriotism, and something about the excitement and access that life in the, private, in the public sector uh, gives you. Our, our workforce will have access to stuff unimaginable in the private sector. We're also seeking to uh, provide a discernible and productive career stream for our cyber practitioners and working with GCHQ to do so so that we can create the biggest pool of practitioners that we can and give them a, a future. Uh, moving on to space, um, as, as a domain, um, it's had comparatively less profile but is arguably equally important to both strategic deterrence and to success on the battlefield. We have a growing dependence on it, certainly from a military perspective. Our timing, our navigation, our communications, our ISA, our, you, you know that. And increasingly, uh, we may find it um, as a uh, weapon base. And there's also dependency from a national and international uh, perspective. It's pivotal in deserve, de delivering services upon which most of the global economy depends. It's becoming more accessible. Uh, you know this. Uh, we'd like to think it's becoming more uh, affordable uh, with pointed looks at certain individuals in the uh, audience. 
Um, and technological advantages and large growth in commercial space sector are improving both that accessibility and dependency. This reliance is understood by our adversaries, and they will develop means of exploiting vulnerabilities and degrading our space-enabled capabilities. Space is becoming more competitive and is becoming a war-fighting domain, and we need to work with partners to ensure that we are ready, both from a resilience perspective and from a deterrence perspective. And there's a massive scope for international uh, collaboration that I know many of you in the room uh, work on uh, on a uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. Lots of good work uh, already uh, underway, but I have to say we are playing catch-up uh, on space. Uh, and if we uh, take uh, much more time in doing so, then we will be uh, left behind. The 2010 SDSR referred to the need to increase our space resilience, and in 2014 we produced a national space security policy. 2015 provided for additional investment in space capabilities, but didn't really change uh, the level of ambition. We really do need to do better. So we are now developing a defence space strategy. We are increasing collaboration with international partners. We are focusing uh, clearly on um, the governance of our space efforts to ensure that there is clarity and accountability uh, within it. And we are developing a cadre of space experts. Currently, most of them wear light blue. Uh, my, I hope that that will not uh, always be the case. Space is a business for all. Our, fo our space strategy focuses on developing increased space situation awareness, improving the resilience of space support to operations, developing space service support and space control. And I've talked about um, the organisational implications of what we're trying to uh, achieve. And uh, it goes without saying uh, that getting the right skills is a very similar challenge to that which I've outlined in the cyber domain. I'm going to sum up, and I'll, I'll, I'll sum up um, quite quickly. Uh, you would quite rightly uh, look at the uh, title of the lecture uh, and uh, claim uh, 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 that the Trade Descriptions Act could be, uh, could be brought uh, into uh, into play. Um, but I do think that, uh, I, and I'm, frankly, I'm not even sure that we as a nation will pick up this American term of multi-domain uh, uh, warfare. Um, but what I hope I've done is to outline what the characteristics of that will be. I think I've looked at it in two contexts. Firstly, the sort of national and the societal and the defence-wide context about developing those foundational essentials without which there is very little point in having a military and without which our deterrent uh, effect will be severely compromised. And I've touched a little bit less and a little bit quicker, perhaps, on, uh, A, the capabilities that one would expect to feel both in pursuit of modern deterrence and in pursuit of developing a joint, uh, a, a, a modern uh, joint warfighting uh, force and how we are adapting and modernising to uh, include uh, new domains. I also hope that I've set out a few uh, challenges that exist. I would not pretend that uh, I uh, have, uh, or defence uh, has all the answers to those challenges. And I just go back, given the sort of relatively eclectic 
nature of the audience, that this idea of defence more at the heart of national uh, security, this idea of a whole force with all elements of that whole force uh, viewing themselves as a partnership to uh, common ends. And this idea, and I'm now definitely getting um, uh, too grand, this idea of defence being better understood by the society and, and, better, and, and represent better uh, the society that it purports to uh, protect and defend in a more uh, profound way, I think, is the direction of travel. Uh, and I think without it, uh, we will find ourselves disadvantaged um, against other nations who have that more instinctively as part of their DNA. That was a very profound way to finish, but that's, that's me. Thank you very much for listening. I'm sorry for five-minute overrun.